white. Be nice. White. Be nice. Nice and Thank you. Now, A-A-Ron. Do you remember the first time you saw Key and Peel? Though almost a silly question by now, I clearly remember the moment sitting in my high school cafeteria and hearing someone yelling about A-A-Ron. I asked them what that was from, and on their phone they pulled up the now classic substitute teacher sketch. That skit, which very well may still be the most famous sketch in the output of Key and Peele, predominantly features the first half of the duo, Keegan-Michael Key. He gives a wonderful comedic performance that is instantly memorable, and he continued to do it throughout the four-season run of the show, so much so that Key was nominated for an Emmy. However, while it is also almost redundant now to point this out, hiding in the very back of that sketch, only uttering one word, is the other half of the duo. Present. It's almost silly to pretend there is an air of mystery surrounding the identity of that person, as we all know now that he would go on to become one of the most exciting and talented directors of his generation. This is, of course, the illustrious Jordan Peele. The story of how Jordan Peele went from his uncanny impersonations of Barack Obama to Oscar-winning screenwriter and director is an evolution that has been something of great discussion since that debut film was released in 2017. Get Out was a shock to everyone, except for Jordan, it seemed, and was correctly heralded as an exciting new talent and a landmark film, especially in the black community, though perhaps even more notable for its crossover success. While his follow-up, Us, may have been less culturally saturated, it was still a layered and powerful work that seemed to signal that this new filmmaker was perhaps the real deal. I am definitely someone who was on the train for Us and saw it twice in theaters. And now here we are with Nope, while perhaps early and without any total confidence in how this film will age, the general and my own first response to Nope is overwhelmingly positive. The film is phenomenal and seems in large part to be a solidifier of Jordan Peele, not just as an exciting new talent, but perhaps as an emerging all-time great. In a climate of studios releasing predominantly risk-adverse films with established intellectual property they know is bankable, Jordan Peele has managed in only five years to release three completely original films all of which have become successful. Furthermore, this acknowledges Jordan Peele's success without even fully contextualizing his impact as a black filmmaker. Few directors are capable of a run of three classics, which is where the comparisons to other filmmakers begin. Many have thrown around Spielberg illusions, ready to praise Jordan for his ability with imagery and his heart, yet some go further, ready to crown Jordan as a modern Hitchcock. Yet, some find his films spread too thin and full of disconnected ideas, and fear perhaps this could still turn into another M. Night Shyamalan situation. Further Steel Peel is a genre filmmaker, and therefore is subject to an acclaim only when kept at an arm's length, despite the Oscar he has already won. So, what does it even mean to be the next Hitchcock? What does that mean in context of Jordan Peele? Today, while perhaps a little redundant, and at risk of being maybe reductive, let's go back in time a little to examine these ideas and consider the question of Jordan Peele. In their 1958 review of Alfred Hitchcock's now canonical classic Vertigo, Variety magazine published that the film was a prime though uneven Hitchcock, and after writing a somewhat surprising full-on spoiler for the end of the film, finishes the piece wondering if after, quote, more than two hours that have gone by, whether that much time should be devoted to what is basically only a psychological murder mystery. 
That of course can sound strange by today's standards, especially considering the film and filmmaker of which they speak. Vertigo has seen in the years to come not just a critical reclamation, but ascension, famously unseating Citizen Kane as the quote, best film of all time, according to the British Sight and Sound magazine poll of film critics. The film's director, Alfred Hitchcock, really needs no introduction, universally recognized as one of the greats. And yet, perhaps Variety's initial dismissal of Vertigo and Hitchcock is perhaps not surprising. Vertigo, and for that matter most of Hitchcock's films, are all, quote, genre films, which is to say they operate in areas of horror, mystery, noir, and intrigue. They are entertainments and narratives, often seemingly disconnected or disconcerned with reality, and as such seen as lesser arts, fodder for the masses. In fact, for many years Hitchcock, though incredibly popular, was not considered to be a great artist. So, how did he get the title he has today? The reclamation of Alfred Hitchcock was in fact not mere happenstance, but a concentrated effort from another group of seemingly dissimilar filmmakers. In 1966, beloved French New Wave director Francois Truffaut published his seminal book Hitchcock Truffaut, wherein he documented the over 50 hours of interviews he had conducted with the filmmaker, going over almost his entire filmography. Truffaut had been a longtime advocate of Hitchcock, and upon the discovery that Hitch's films were not respected in Hollywood and American film criticism, decided to do something to try to turn the tide. In fact, the stem of this was planted even earlier in the French New Wave, when in 1952, Truffaut's contemporary director Jean-Luc Godard declared Hitchcock's directorial virtuosity, and that Hitchcock was a, quote, true modern, in an article published in their shared magazine, Cahiers du Cinéma. This was supported by Maurice Scherer, who would later take the name Eric Romer, who led the charge of the entire group in allowing Cahiers du Cinéma to put its lot out for the filmmaker. So why did these legends of the French New Wave, many of whom would end up being directly responsible for the trajectory of cinema themselves, feel so strongly to support a filmmaker that had otherwise been seen as a mere entertainer? A brief look at the work of Truffaut, Godard, and Romer will show that on a surface level, these filmmakers had little similarities with Alfred, each one more focused on personal stories of philosophy, relationship strife, and sometimes just general tomfoolery. While Godard's stories certainly brushed against murder more than the others in the Nouvelle Vague, he still was not crafting entertainments a la Hitchcock. Essentially, these filmmakers came together to elevate Hitchcock from his widely recognized position as the master of suspense to someone widely respected for his innate understanding of cinema, and thus someone deserving to be revered as an all-time great. As Godard put it, Hitchcock made films based on the, quote, inseparability of camera, the filmmaker, and the camera operator with respect to the reality represented. So what does that even mean at all? <laughs> of course, there is the technical analysis relative to the use of camera and whatnot, but I think Godard and the other new waivers are pointing at something even more elusive in a filmmaker that speaks to the core of the movies. Cinema defaultly is illusion. It is shadows on a wall, designed with the specific intent of making those viewing feel something. In praising Hitchcock, the new wave were making the claim that true cinema does not try to only recreate life, but to fully embrace the inherent falseness. By acknowledging the artifice in the work, as Hitchcock did, the charade is exposed, thus opening the film up for potentially more genuine emotion and artistic expression. Hitchcock, to them, was True cinema. Now, of course, there is an instant pushback that I might have to this idea, and we even see that within the films of the New Wave themselves. 
As I mentioned, Godard's sensibilities and his use of performance and editing were constantly breaking from reality. But Romer, Truffaut, and even Agnes Varda's films were very often based in some level of realism. I would even feel to bring up the idea from the get-go that I do not completely subscribe to this idea, as some of my favorite filmmakers, people like Yasujiro Ozu, Kelly Reichardt, Sajaji Ray, Richard Linklater, or Edward Yang, are all seeking to remove the artifice of camera and represent reality to the best of their ability. However, at the same time, we likely could unpack any one of these masters and consider how their use of the camera's artifice is employed to find those genuine artistic expressions and emotions. So, for the sake of today's discussion, let's delve further into this Hitchcock rabbit hole. Perhaps what the new waivers were trying to do was not put down the filmmakers that operated outside of genre when they called Hitchcock a true modern. Rather, they were trying to destigmatize the whole way we look at these kinds of films. While Romer and Truffaut acknowledged the artifice of filmmaking by operating in context of time or romantic notions specifically, for Hitchcock, he acknowledged it through narrative. It was through editing and his pulp quality of camera. It was in the artificiality of his sets and in the extreme nature of his stories. Hitchcock is the all-time great genre filmmaker, and perhaps that is what makes him the all-time great filmmaker. Hitchcock was a filmmaker of spectacle. This dichotomy is something we have seen throughout the history of filmmaking in general. Before Hitchcock, there was George Méliès, whose innovations were often ignored and at very worst destroyed because of the, quote, showman, fantastical qualities of his stories. Since Hitchcock, we have seen Steven Spielberg find praise for his films, yet only genuine recognition for his films that tell stories based in history. Some may argue that the tide has turned to some extent, with films like Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water or Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, each winning the best picture and each coming from these traditions of their own right, though I should mention that using the Oscars as a bench for any sort of genuine evaluation is a bit flawed innately. So, what does that have to do with Jordan Peele and Nope? Is it time to fully consider Jordan Peele an heir to Alfred Hitchcock, something ironically recently stated in Variety magazine? Does the release of Nope solidify him as a remarkable director who understands the camera innately and, as Godard said, a true modern? While for some that may be extreme, or perhaps unfounded, I think it's well time to see Jordan Peele as not only carrying on the tradition, but forging a new path of his own. Like the great Hitchcock movies, Nope is a genre film operating in a realm divorced from reality. This is present in camera, editing, and certainly a narrative. As Nope will tell you from the very beginning of the film, with the Bible verse that Peele includes, it is a film about spectacle. This is clear in the different deviations of the characters, but of course it is most clear because Nope is a gigantic multi-million dollar film. It is a grand, original, horror-tinged, yet also intimate, epic film. Something that seems almost an impossibility in today's film landscape. It is so tightly crafted and confidently created that it is not surprising that Peele has been compared to one of our great filmmakers. Yet this is where Jordan Peele goes one step further. Nope shows us that Jordan Peele is perhaps not only the potentially reductive, quote, next Hitchcock, but someone willing to continually engage with the concepts first solidified by the new waivers. Nope succeeds not merely as just a film full of spectacle with a powerful cinematic style, but one that is also directly asking us not just the cost of spectacle, but with it, cinema itself. Jordan Peele's Nope moves past the ideas 
of merely using genre for artistic expression, but for genuine dialogue, as each of the carefully calculated elements, be it the UFOs, the characters, or even a certain monkey, all play into this visual conversation. This is something we also see in Get Out and Us, though in Nope the ideas are even less explicitly stated, allowing them to distill upon us even more cinematically. Nope is in many ways having its cake and eating it too. To explain this in even greater detail, Jordan Peele. I think, you know, as we talk about spectacles, you know, it becomes abundantly clear that all the, the themes and characters in this movie interact or represent the media in some way. And, uh, or some faction of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously the nucleus of the media I'm sort of examining here is, is, is Hollywood. Mm -hmm. it, and uh, the selling of, of dreams, the selling of nightmares, the selling of illusion, um, is, uh, is, is that, that's in the cornerstone of the piece. But it's not just an indictment of Hollywood. I mean, there, there, are, there are a couple moments in the film where it's sort of an indictment of, of, of us, yeah. of, of, of journalism. Yeah, yeah, any, 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 any time that we're going to make money yeah. off of the human need to see something crazy, mm -hmm. um, that to me is what I, what I call spectacleization. God. And I'm a I'm I'm a guilty party. Yeah. You're a guilty party. Um, we pretty we we kind of all are yeah. in some ways, whether what whatever side we're all on it, and that's kind of the point. Ultimately, I don't have an answer of what true cinema is, nor which lines our spectacle may have crossed. And I don't know if Jordan Peele does either, but that's kind of the coolest thing about it. The thing is, Jordan Peele is not just the, quote, next Hitchcock, or next Spielberg, or next Bong Joon-ho. Jordan Peele is the first Jordan Peele, and I can't wait to see what he makes next. Come back next week to hear an exciting discussion about a certain superhero featuring Nathan Gehring.